Better? Yeah, thank you. So appreciated that reflection on Sabbath this morning. So good to think about. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Sabbath the last few months. And uh, I'm thinking about my resistance. Anybody kind of have resistance to Sabbath? I mean, I always have reasons why I really shouldn't. <laughs> and they're never the right reasons. Uh, and I happen to think that Sabbath, this morning is not about Sabbath, it's just a few, it's, it's a little bit of promo, I think, for the retreat next weekend, is, is I think that it's going to be really difficult for each of us to be the follower of Jesus that thrives in his kingdom without regular practice of Sabbath. And I think that's true for us as a community too. So there's been a, as we think about redreaming together, I'm just speaking for me, there's been any kind of a growing, emerging conviction about what would it look like as a community that was consistently, individually, and then occasionally together, but that's not necessarily the point here, but that's really stopping weekly and saying no more and to, to all the, the resistances that we have related to productivity or whatever it is and saying, I'm going to celebrate the reality that, that Christ is enough and I'm going to live in that as if the kingdom was fully here for a, for a period. And uh, so I think it is important to us. So... Um, we're in this series called Redreaming Church. We've been coming at it a little bit strangely, maybe, by looking at some letters from God to seven communities uh, that are found in two chapters in the book of Revelation. And uh, they've been really amazing to me. I want to share a couple resources with you. I don't, I don't push books very often up here, um, but I, there's two I want to just share with you, like, because, and here's why, we're going to do, of course, next weekend is the retreat. We're not going to do anything related directly, at least not planning with, to Revelation. And then we have two more Sundays uh, in, in Revelation. And, uh, and then we're going to transition into Advent season. And um, so we're not going to keep going in Revelation. I, I kind of pondered that, but I don't think that's been the guidance that I've, I've had uh, but I wanted to share two resources in case, like, this has awakened a curiosity in Revelation. Um, I think one day we'll circle back and go through the entire book, but it's not going to be now. One of them is called Revelation for the Rest of Us by Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight's a, a New Testament scholar in Chicago. It's been really helpful. It's not an exegetical step-by-step through Revelation, so you won't get that, and that's sometimes very helpful, but this one kind of thematically comes at the book, and it's done in a really readable way, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple, did I say that right, dissident disciple, and, uh, and I'll say a little bit about that word this morning, actually, um, that I really never thought about that word much to him, and then this one is not a book on Revelation, uh, I'm sharing this with you because Christmas is coming. And like, if you're looking for like, I want a big New Testament overview book. This is a new one, came out about maybe a year ago, I'm not sure. 
It's called The New Testament in Its World. And it's by N.T. Wright and uh, Michael Byrd. And they're very trustworthy, notable scholars. Uh, An introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. I highly recommend it. He's easy to, he's a scholar. He's easy to read uh, most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes he, he'll get a little bit academic on you, but, but, but honestly, 90% of the time, uh, I found him to be very readable, um, and I, I would recommend that. If you're looking, it's, I'm sure it's not cheap, so that's more like in the birthday Christmas present <laughs> domain kind of book for most of us, but uh, I would recommend it. Okay, let's shift to our letters this morning. We're actually going to cover two different letters this morning to two communities that are that overlap. I think you'll see that. I think I want to start by saying this. From the earliest times in the Christian church, there's been problems with what's called often false teaching in those communities. That's been a constant. We see it in the New Testament. If you look in Galatians, there's this struggle within the community uh, coming from uh, Jewish Messianic Jews, we might call them, who've come to Christ, who are struggling with, but what about the law? How do we live that out? And they're really struggling with Gentiles, not Jewish people in the community, who don't seem to be paying any attention to it. And so that rose up, probably false teaching on both sides of that conversation. We see it in Romans. Romans was messy in a lot of different ways, uh, the, the church there, one of the things that you see them struggling with is what Paul refers to as the weak and the strong in the community. Not totally different than what's going on in Galatia, but how do we be with people who, like no one sees themselves as the weak, they see the other ones as the weak, which is interesting. Um, how do we be with people who have really different views and convictions? You, we see it in the letter to Colossians. There's some strange teachings going on in that community that they're having to wrestle through. We see it in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a community that really got caught up in what we would call end times teaching. Although they didn't call it end times teaching, they just called it their times teaching because they really thought Jesus' return was imminent that there weren't going to be many more first-generation Christians die before he came. So what did many of them do? They quit their jobs. Many of them cloistered together. They moved. Some of them even moved on top of a, a small mountain, and just they were there waiting. So Paul addresses that in his letters to Thessalonica. It seems, and, and so we could keep going through the history of the church. That's just the early ancient church. But through the history of the church, there's been this struggle with how do we stay pure to the life teachings of Jesus? How do we stay true to the ways of God? And so these congregations that we're looking at in Revelations, they're no exception uh, at all. We're going to look today at two communities. Uh, John, in these letters to this address from Jesus, to these communities. He's going to name four false teachers to Pergamon in the communities of Pergamon and Thyatira. See if you can identify them as, as we read the text. 
But what's going on here, although he is going to name some of them, uh, kind of a, a clue here, the three will be easy for you to name. The fourth will be the mystery. Uh, but you can get there if you try. So that, that'll help you. Um, so he's naming four false teachers, but what's going on in the community, there's just the, the false teachers are the ones bringing you know, something false, but the community's really wrestling. It's, all, it's not necessarily like they're following it. it. They could be, but they're also, the false teachers are reflecting the struggle that's going on in the community because these are people who are living in the culture, in the times of their particular locale. They're citizens of a culture whose values and attitudes or actions are very much out of step with what Jesus taught and lived. Does that sound familiar? That's what they're struggling with. So that's our, our quest, is to listen. This has always been our quest, to listen to what's being addressed in this text, and then reflect and ask, what does what is the Spirit might say to me, to us? So today's text, it's not really a feel, they're not really feel-good passages. Uh, that's not what you get from them. In fact, when I first started working with these uh, two particular ones, I was like, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what you have for us here. Uh, but true to God's Word, I love this about um, God's Word. I actually love this about preaching is like as I immerse in it, then it, the, the, the transition happens from what could possibly be here for us to how in the world am I going to get this in in a half hour? That, that's the transition that happens most weeks. As I've studied, it's been easy. So what we're going to do, we're going to read the text. I'm going to take a brisk walk through the text. Uh, maybe brisker, if you're a Bible nerd, maybe more brisk than you want. Um, and then, I think for today, uh, I want to share some reflections from the text. Uh, and I have several of those. So that, that's kind of the plan uh, today, not that different than what we normally do. Um, what we're going to see here is that distorted teachings, I'm going to use the word distorted teachings, because that's what false teaching often is. It's not so crazy that people won't follow it. It's, a, it's something that's good and true, and it's twisted. It's distorted. That leads to distorted paradigms, way of thinking, ways of looking at reality in the world, and that le leads to out-of-sync behavior, and that leads to out-of-sync worship, distorted worship, and that's what we're going to see here. So let's listen. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 2. I think it starts in verse, what, 12, I believe. So here we go. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one holding the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is, and that you hold fast to my name, and that you have not renounced your faith in me, even the days of Antipas, Antipas my faithful witness who was murdered in your midst, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold fast to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to ensnare the sons of Israel to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. Likewise, you have some holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If you do not, I am coming soon and will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let the one having ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one overcoming, I will give manna that has been kept secret, and I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one receiving it. It's intriguing. Secondly, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God says this, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet or this is an awkward translation, but it was the best I could do, are like brass melted in a furnace and polished. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and steadfast endurance, and that your works are greater now here at the end than they were at the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, the one who calls herself a prophet, and teaches and misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time so she might repent of her sexual immorality, but she is not willing. Look, I am throwing her upon a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great suffering unless they repent of her deeds. And I will strike her children in death. And all the churches will know I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give each of you according to your deeds. But I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you not holding to her teaching, those who have not learned the so-called deep secrets of Satan, I will not lay any other burden upon you. Only hold fast to what you have till I come. To the one and to the one who is overcoming and keeping my words to the end, I will give that person authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and they will be shattered like clay pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will give that person the morning star. Let the one having ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard two ancient communities who were addressed. Were they ever? Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we listen to what you had to say to them. We ask that your Holy Spirit would, would take these words and translate them for us. We want to understand what was happening then. But Lord, we, we don't want just that. We want to know what the Spirit might have for us. So have your way with us. May your word be clear. Um, I'll do my best, but Lord, we acknowledge we need you. 
to give us that kind of clarity that would actually translate into living and being more like Jesus. So help us, we pray. Lord, we pray against any spirits that would want to bring confusion, that would want to uh, cast a shadow on your truth, on the words that come from your mouth. We pray that, that your spirit would have its way without hindrance. In Jesus' name, amen. So distorted teaching that finds its way into distorted worship. That's what we're looking at today. Case number one is Pergamon. Pergamon's an interesting place. It's in western Turkey, like all the other uh, communities. Pergamon had become the Roman capital of the province of uh, Asia, 133 B.C. Pergamon, okay, the word parchment came from Pergamon. It was named after Pergamon. Why? Because Pergamon was a great, held a great library. That's a picture of what remains from the library uh, today. Pergamum, because it was kind of an intellectual center, uh, became a really important place in the Roman Empire in that part of the country. It was filled with temples to all kinds of gods, most notably to emperor worship. That's what Pergamum is kind of centered on, is emperor worship. And then there were gods surrounding emperor worship that kind of supported that in all different kinds of ways. So as we get into some of the behavior that Jesus is confronting here, I want you to keep in mind, it, it sounds strange to our modern ears, but much of the behavior that he's, con that he's dealing with is related to uh, nationalism, emperor worship. Um, there was a temple to Zeus there. That temple to Zeus is likely what Jesus is calling the throne of Satan, where this person, Antipas, was murdered. We don't know anything else about him uh, other than, and matter of fact, here's something interesting. He's the only martyr mentioned by name in Revelation is this fellow Antipas, and it was, his murder happened at this temple uh, of Zeus. Uh, Dionysus was another god, Athene was another god, they had notable temples there, but most notably was the temple of Zeus that became this center of emperor worship. In fact, it was the first temple constructed outside of Rome in the entire empire related to emperor worship. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. John, who's on this island, he's been exiled, the island of Patmos, and he's had this vision. And so here's what he's saying to this people. The one holding the sharp, double-edged sword. That's warrior language. That's judge language. That's how he's starting this address to that. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. He says, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. And I know that you have held fast to my name. That becomes an important phrase for John, holding fast, as he addresses these congregations. And I know that you have not renounced your faith in me, even during that crazy time of what happened to Antipas, you stayed 
faithful as he was my faithful witness. Some see the reference to Satan here as a reference to the serpent. Why do I say that? One of the gods' name was Asclepius. Asclepius was a, a god of healing, but the symbol of the god of Asclepius was a serpent. And so they saw this serpent, people who followed this god, as um, a symbol of healing. But the Christ followers didn't see it that way. Most notably, Christ himself. He saw it as a symbol of evil. He saw it as a distortion of something good, healing. Something that was actually had a dark underbelly. So he says, I know where you live. You live the throne of Satan where the clepis is there. So he gives them these encouraging words. I know you've held fast. I know you've not renounced your faith, but then he gets sober pretty quick. Verse 14, I have a few things against you. There's some who hold fast, there's that phrase again, to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to ensnare the sons of Israel to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual adultery. So who's Balaam? Some of you know who Balaam was. He's an Old Testament figure. He's kind of a strange figure. His name's here. I don't think there was really a person in the community named Balaam. He's using this metaphorically. This is imagery, as, as Revelation is. But you can be sure there are real persons that Jesus has in mind in that community when he's referring to Balaam. He, he's a strange kind of prominent figure. Uh, he ta- he, he's in like five or six chapters in Numbers. It's about 25 to 31. So he's not just someone who just pops up for a moment. He, there, you see maybe some good things, but you also there's like there's something really shifty about this character. And then we see that in, verse, in chapter 25 of Numbers that the men of Israel are sleeping with Moabite women outside of their tribe, and these women were seducing them into idolatry. Specifically, we see the men eating food sacrificed to idols and committing the sexual immorality. And in chapter 31, it comes back around, and guess who gets blamed for all this? Balaam. Balaam is mentioned as one who kind of advising them to follow this course towards Moabite women. So that's the link. So here in Pergamum, something similar is happening. There's false teaching, and there's idolatrous practices in the community, and it's characterized, wait for it, eating food sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality. It sounds strange to us that those things would kind of go together, but, but if you think of it in terms of a Roman party, then, then that helps get you there. Temples became places for Roman partying. So there were often feasts that was tied in, the food was tied into sacrifice to these false gods, and then that would lead to drunkenness, which would lead to, you can go from there and kind of see what's going on here. In chapter 15, 
Jesus also mentions this other group that we've heard before, the Nicolaitans. Um, we don't know that much about them. They were, they were mentioned in the letter to Ephesus as well. We don't know that much about their teaching. There's some speculation out there. However, I want to I at least break down the word. I feel a little bit like the father on the big fat Greek wedding here. Because if you take Nicolaitans, Nico, uh, Nico means to conquer. Latian means people. To conquer people. Is that something related to their, their word? Remember, nationalism, so this temple worship and the nationalism is about Rome, making Rome great. And so were the Nicolaitans kind of oriented in that movement? We don't really know for sure, but we can wonder. It could have been there was just a person in the community named Nicholas that was traveling around to different communities, and that's where the name comes. We don't really know. Verse 16, Jesus says, therefore, if you don't repent, if you don't repent, I'm coming. Now we get a little sense of why he's got the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I will wage war, he says, against them with the sword of my mouth. This is what John is seeing. Remember, this is a vision. John's seeing He's seen Jesus coming and waging war against those who've given in to this false teaching. And it's going to be a war of words in some fashion. I wonder, too, if the sword is also being used in a figurative way, in another way, that it's a reminder to this emperor-worshipping culture that there is another power much greater that will take the dark lords in that culture down. I don't know. Verse 17, let the one having ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So I wonder what Jesus' Spirit would say to us through this. To the one overcoming, he says, I will give manna. That's an interesting thing to say. Manna that's been kept secret. In, in this community that's eating this meat sacrifice to idols, there's an alternative of food being offered. I will give manna. I will give manna that's been kept secret, and I'll give that person a white stone with a new name. So when the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., so a long time, 600 years earlier plus, Jeremiah the prophet hid the pot of manna that was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He hid it from Babylon. And it became said in the communities that when the Messiah came, the pot of manna would reappear. Is this what Jesus is riffing on? Perhaps. Perhaps. Remember, what was manna? It was God's provision of food in the desert. This is a people in the desert, figuratively speaking. Something to think about. Then he says, I'll give that person a white stone with a new name. We shouldn't be too overconfident about what that means. Uh, but consider this. People in antiquity, names were a big deal. I think most of us are kind of aware of that. Like some of you, you named your kid 
the name you gave them, because there was meaning attached to that name, but you don't necessarily hold them to that meaning as they grow up. You know, you don't say, hey, remember what your name is. You know, we don't really do that, but in those days, that's exactly what they did. The name and the character of the person were wrapped up together. It was precious. Your name was precious to them. So listen to what it says. I'll give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Uh, I think that's one way to think about it. I, I don't know what, what you do with this, you know, but I can imagine maybe one of the images that came to my mind, my imagination was a couple of little kids sitting in the tall grass um, in that community saying, I know what my new name's going to be. My daddy told me my new name's going to be Orange Lily or, you know, Swift Cheetah. I don't, I don't know, you know, I just, it's just kind of where my mind went, you know, is, is like there is an anticipation of a new name being received. We'll return to a few reflections from Pergamum in a minute. Let's go on. I told you this is going to be a brisk walk. Let's go on to case number two. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God says this. So Thyatira is a different town. It's not. It's more a little bit more urban, uh, quite a bit more blue collar. Um, it was the home of a lot of trade guilds, uh, kind of uh, metalworking. Uh, one famous trade guild there related to dyeing wool. Remember Lydia from Acts 16? She's from Thyatira. We find her in Philippi uh, later. This is Thyatira. He says, say this, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like brass. More battle language. More strong. It's very vivid here. It, it reminds us a little bit about Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. Here, you can check that out. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and steadfast endurance, and that your works are greater here at the end than they were at first. Jesus doesn't fail to let these communities know the good that he sees. But he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, the one who calls herself a prophet and teaches and misleads my servants into Sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. There's a lot of overlap in these two communities. Jezebel's also a symbolic name. I don't think anybody in that time was naming their kid Jezebel. <laughs> anybody think about naming your daughter Jezebel? Uh, I mean, it kind of, even to this day, it has an interesting... Anybody know anybody by the name Jezebel? Maybe in some cultures it's fine. I don't know. Um, it'd be a little bit like naming your son Adolf. Probably not that many people doing that. Um, Jezebel is also an Old Testament figure. She's the wife of an Israelite king, Ahab, who convinced her husband to participate in the worship of Baal. So, so much similar here. Something's going on with Jezebel. Um, she's luring people into these practices that are also oriented around this temple worship and sexual immorality, eating meat, sacrifice to these dark lords. And so Christ says, I've given her time. Whoever this woman is, or a group of women, we don't really know, or people, she says, I've given 
her time to repent, but she's not willing. And then he says some really hard things. I'm throwing her into sickness. Those committed adultery with her are going to suffer greatly unless they repent, and I'm going to strike her children dead. We're seeing Jesus in a different light. We're seeing Jesus in a way that doesn't make us feel good or comfortable. But Jesus had this beautiful ability, wonderful ability, to both be the gentle, kind, humble teacher that he was, but he was also a warrior. And he lived with both of those traits. And we see the warrior part here. He says, the churches will then know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give each of you according to their deeds. So the message here is clear. This is the message. There's be no association with idolatry. None. No association with the practices associated. Eating meat, sacrifice to idols, or sexual immorality. Now, some of you may be thinking about, wait a minute, what about, Paul addresses meat, sacrifice to idols. It's in 1 Corinthians 8. And Paul's teaching on it is like in Corinth, some of the people are like, you should never do that. Some people in Corinth are like doing it. They're eating meat, sacrificed to idols. It's important to know there's a difference, what, what's being addressed. In Corinth, what's being addressed are people eating meat that was sacrificed to the idols, was then taken to the market and resold. And so pe- people are like, hey, it's just meat, doesn't matter. But some people will say, no, you don't do that. So Paul's position is, look, if it's a problem, don't do it. There's freedom, but don't make this a problem for somebody. So err on the side of being careful. What's going on here in Thyatira and in Pergamum is different. When, when they're talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, they're talking about in the temple, in these Roman party feasts. Uh, so similar, but also very different. Um, you also see in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, if, you, if you're familiar with that, the church in Jerusalem is having a struggle about what do we do with these Gentiles who are not acting Jewishly? And one of the things, one of their rulings is stay away from what? Meat sacrificed to idols. Interesting, it wasn't that far after that that Paul's writing 1 Corinthians and he's saying, yeah, there's freedom. So, like, there's mixed on this, but What's clear is we have no association with idolatry and the sexual immorality and practices that come with it. So, because of time, that was the brisk walk through the two letters. You may have all kinds of other questions from some of that. Um, Feel free to talk to me. Feel free to read somebody or or whatever, and I can at least recommend some sources if I don't know your the answer to your question, or you don't like my answer to your question. So, uh, but I want to I want to kind of share some reflections from this because I, to me, this is where I've sat this week. Uh, a few of them are going to be real quick. Uh, some of them will be uh, a little bit more. Um, the first one is, uh, and I, I have them up here, but I don't have them all. So th- this will help. But it, there'll be a couple I mentioned that aren't on the slide. One, we are continually reminded with each letter that Christ is fully aware 
of the situation of these communities. He, he's got a real sick 360 look uh, on them. And I think, the, the set, like, I know where you live, right? I know your deeds. We hear him saying that, even to Smyrna and Ephesus as well. We've looked at four so far. And the second reflection is tethered to it. These are, we see in these communities a mixed report, a mixed assessment. Jesus commends each of them for where they're doing well. And, and, he, and he's, he's not hesitant to do that. But he's also saying, but I have this against you. And what, what's that saying is, I, which I, I think is, is wonderful, is that Jesus can see all of it. And he cares about all of it. You know, he, he's not saying, well, they're pretty good over that, so we'll overlook that part. He's like, no, there's a vision here of the kind of people I'm calling this community to be. And so I'm, I'm not going to forget what I see that's good, but I'm going to work with them in their struggles. And I'll, I'm going to jump forward a little bit one of the things that is so redemptive here, and we see this throughout, when, when, when he's really issuing correction and rebuke, there's also always a call to repentance. It's, there's always a call to repentance. And uh, he, he's not interested just kind of coming in and cleaning house in, this, in his 360 assessment of these communities. It's redemptive. There's a call to repentance. <clears throat> Number next, sexual immorality, and let's define it, sexual activity outside of a committed marriage between a man and a woman, consensual sexual activity within a committed loving marriage between a man and a woman is a gift from God. Everything outside of that, sexual inactivity, is immorality. That's the clear witness of Scripture, and it is therefore sin. It's sin, and we have to do business with it. Um, this is a crisis in the church, um, and we are called to be a holy people living separately. Jesus and Judaism, the Jesus movement and Judaism distinguished itself from the way of Rome in this way. It was a profoundly different way of living than the culture. You know that those temples that are in Pergamum and are in Thyatira and Ephesus and uh, Smyrna and all these places, this, there's something interesting about the gods they worship. They made little demands on the lives of their followers. In, in fact, it really had nothing to do with morality. There was no religion, had nothing to do with ethics in those. And that, that was the culture. Being a follower of those idols, they, they weren't asking them to be pure and holy in their behavior. The Jesus way was radically different. There's a call to live a distinctive kind of life. Not legalism, not good behavior with terrible roots underneath it, but a good and loving 
way to live that's undergirded by the presence of God in our lives, by the example of Jesus before us, by Scripture. That's the vision. That Christ and His Holy Spirit are abiding in all the parts of the person, mind, soul, spirit, body. This is what most clearly distinguished the Jesus people from the surrounding culture was the manner in which they lived, especially in this area of their sexuality. You can't follow Jesus without this word. You can't do it (laughs) without the abiding Jesus and Holy Spirit with you. You might be able to pull it off behaviorally, but you'll either become just a legalist with it, which is probably going to make you mean about it. So we've got to have Jesus. We have to deal with this in our own lives. You know, our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the flesh is strong. We've got to deal with it. The next reflection, I think I've already said it, I just want to say it in a little bit different way. The judgment statements from Christ in these letters are more than judgments. They're disciplinary warrants. It's like Jesus is issuing a warrant and offering the opportunity to repent. He offers the opportunity. If they refuse the opportunity, he says, I will deal with this. So he's giving us the opportunity to deal with sin in our lives, or he's saying, I will. And that's really clear here. If you don't repent, he says to Pergamum, I'm coming soon, and I'm going to wage war. To Thyatira, I'm throwing her on a sick bed, and it ain't going to be pretty for those who are with her. So we, we get this, like, we're getting this portrayal of Jesus that when we're submitting our lives under him if we're following him yeah we're going to stumble and fall and trip but if we're aligning our lives and attaching our hearts to him we are with a safe good god who who knows how to deal with us and our weaknesses who's quick to forgive he's full of compassion if we're unwilling to do those things to be with him that way then he is going to be a threat to our well-being He deals with sin. Next reflection. The distorted teachings and practices that were being promoted in these congregations were interwoven in a nationalistic Roman culture and lifestyle. In the Roman culture, piety and nationalism went together. In fact, Roman nationalism was piety to promote the way of Rome, to be a good Roman, to promote its gods, to worship its emperor, was considered good character. That's how you distinguished yourself. That's how you fit into the society. There were all kinds, I don't want us to think of like these temple feasts and sexual immorality as like just the party crowd. If you're a business person in that community, that's how you participated, one way anyway. You participated in the social life 
of the community. So to abstain from those things, to not participate in, had a cost. You weren't just turning your back on that false god. You were turning your back on what it was to fit into that culture. And that often had family implications. It had work implications. You weren't going to be a respected leader in that community when you decided to live this Jesus way. And I think that in itself is worthy of us, our reflection and asking like, I mean, this is not new. What I'm saying is not new, but it's always worthy reflecting on is like, what is the world's culture saying to me, saying to us about how we should belong in this world? And where is that okay and where is that not okay as a person committed to give my whole life to following Jesus? And, we, and there's a lot of sorting out we have to do with that, right? But we must. Jesus offers a different way. And make no mistake about it, that way is always going to be narrow. He, he made no mistake about that. We have to discern how to live in the world. I'm going to use Scott McKnight's word now as dissidents. This is his favorite word about how we live in the world as followers of Jesus. We're dissidents. We're committed to a way that's true and good and right, but in the culture, it's going to be at odds. Whether that means things like consumerism, materialism, chasing the American dream, or something like nationalism, it's always going to be idolatry, those things, for us. My last reflection is this, and I honestly, I had this one like an hour and a half ago. <laughs> we have to learn how to fight. What we see and what we, one of the things we learn kind of indirectly here from Jesus, I mentioned it already, is he's, also, he's a warrior and part of being his follower. We're not very good at this. I'm not. I was sharing, when we were talking about how do we, what would we love about Jesus is what I shared with my little group. And, and it was like, I know how to fight. Um, but I know I'm more acquainted with how to fight driven by anger. You know? And so, this way of Jesus, we have to learn how to live this out. Because we have three very formidable enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all very real. And they're all there to take us out. They will take you out if you let them. And we have to learn how to fight. Fortunately, we have a lot of help with this. We have the abiding Jesus and his spirit. And we have a lot of good stuff in scripture that equips us for the fight. We know this. But I think that like, coming out of the last three and a half years in, in the culture, um, it's been easy, if we're not careful, to lose our fight. And we can't. Uh, I'm not trying to spotlight Emily here. Like, she was up all night with a sick baby. She got an hour of sleep. 
You know what fighting looks like for her today? She showed up. <laughs> she had a responsibility. That's the fight, you know. I'm not saying you should come to church when your baby's sick every time. That's not the point. I'm saying that's, what it looked, that's one thing it looked like for her today. She probably wasn't thinking about it that way, you know. But, but the fight means I'm going to do what's honoring and right to my Lord. Sometimes the fight may look very different than showing up because i got a sick baby. And that's okay. But we cannot lose our fight in us. And, and we've got to find it sometimes. You know, sometimes fatigue can just say, eh, just roll over. We don't do that. You need to rest. That's part of the gift of Sabbath so we can take a break and say it ends here. And we're not going to struggle today. We're going to live as, as a gazillionaires today. But we have to fight because we have formidable foes. So here's my three takeaways, and they're real quick. Those are my reflections. Here's the three takeaways. You may have some more. I wish we now had time to break out, talk about them, but you can do that later on your own. First one, when we see our sin, we have an invitation. And it's called repent. We're going to still struggle with sin, individually, collectively. The invitation is to repent. Jesus isn't surprised when we sin. Repentance addresses our thinking. That's what the word means, change your thinking. It addresses our behavior. Stop it. There are common practices, repentance, confession of a devoted community of Jesus. Keep repenting, keep confessing. They go hand in hand. If you're not confessing, you should be. Because I'm assuming you're sinning. You need to name those sins. And not every time, but a good bit of the time, you need to name them with someone, to someone, in their presence. That's healthy. That's what healthy communities do. Sin isolates. That's his nature. Confess it to a brother or sister in your CLC. Whatever uh, is good and right. Second, what do we learn? Hold fast. That's a normal trait of a Jesus community. Is that we learn to hold fast. What does that look like? It looks different every time. Here's the good news. You don't need to hold fast alone. Hold fast is a community endeavor. Yeah, it has to work out individually, but we hold fast together because at any given time, this morning, there's probably of the 30 or whatever there is in the room, there's some of you who are like, I'm sorry, I don't have it. And there's someone in the room that should have the posture of, no problem, I got you, sister. That's what holding fast looks like. I mean, that, that's a simple way of talking about it. But it's how it has to work for us. Because there's no way we're all going to be at that fight place all the time. So we have to have humility to let others, to be in a community that's holding fast together, takes humility. Finally, we learn there is one coming for us. There is a way, truth, and life he invites us to now. 
But there's a sense, based on what Jesus is saying, like, if you hold fast, you're going to get this. You're going to get this new stone with a new name. You're going to get this secret manna. Whatever he's meaning is not as important as there's good coming for us. And no matter how much we talk about the kingdom is now and God is good and present with us, you know we talk about that a lot. There's also a sense in which our lives are hard. And we're not going to graduate from that. We're going to live with both those tensions. So we have to learn to live in trust and obedience. And there's parts of your life that's hard right now that is going to get healed and touched by God and provided for. And one day you'll look back and say, I'm so glad. And then there may be some parts of your life that's hard right now that may be hard for the next 50 years too. I don't know. So what's the Spirit saying to you through these letters? What's the Spirit say, might say to us as a community? Well, I think a lot of these things. Maybe try to record one of them before the day's out. Try to reflect on one of them for your life. Maybe share one with your friend, spouse, whatever, child. You know, what's the Spirit saying to us? Let's pray. Lord, we offer this time back to you, and we ask that you would do with it what you would. Lord, thank you for inviting us into this radically different way of living and being that requires um, being children and receiving it and being innocent and all those things, but also ask us to fight. Lord, sometimes we don't know if we've got the fight in us. Uh, life is hardwired to kind of beat it out of us. But Lord, show us how to fight in your way. That's our longing, Lord. Because life is asking a lot from us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.